All right, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be looking at uh, verses 7 uh, through 11. Before we read it and consider it, let's, let's go to our Lord in prayer together. Our Father, we're thankful that as your people, you've given us your word, that you not only spoke it in times of old and visions and various means, but you have written it down. You've inscripturated it by your Holy Spirit, moving men to write so that we can not only read these things, but also spend time meditating upon them and looking to you for Uh, for your grace to write these things on our hearts. So as we uh, take this time to not only read a portion of Ephesians 4, but also uh, consider it and think about it, we pray that you would change us, that you'd grow us uh, in maturity, that we would become more and more like Jesus on account of what we're about to do, and that you would bring any who may not know you to a saving knowledge of you. Do this to make much of yourself, And do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians uh, chapter 4 at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're going to finish just right at the end of verse 11 with the word teachers. So thus far, the reading of God's word, Ephesians 4, 7 to 11, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here. This morning, I want us to see just three things out of the passage, uh, the theme being that Christ gives gifts to His people. Um, Who receives the gifts? What are the gifts? And how do we get them? So who receives them? What are they? And how do we get them? Uh, So number one, who receives the gifts? And I draw your attention really to uh, the beginning of verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. Now, It would have been enough for the apostle to write, but grace was given to each of us, okay? That would have been differentiated enough. He's just finished talking about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one spirit, one God and Father of all, bringing everything together and uniting everything, and now he's splitting everyone apart. And he's saying, grace was given to each of you, but not just to each of you, to each one of you. So he is, as it were, hyper-individuating each of us, if that's a word. He's peeling us all apart, as it were, and forcing each of us to stand before Christ, the gift giver, in and of ourselves as those who receive uh, the gifts. And this isn't just Paul in Ephesians 4 doing this, but also in 1 Peter, Peter writes in chapter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, And then 1 Corinthians 12 at verse 7 and 11, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So one thing that the apostle is making clear here, 
is that as Christ gives gifts, all of his gift giving is unique. It's unique to each one of us. No Christian's gift package can be reduplicated, as it were. We're all sort of spiritual snowflakes is another way of putting it. Every one of us is gifted differently. And as we'll notice in a little bit, there's maybe categories of gifts, but we all have different measures from each category, as it were, so that there's no two gifted Christians who are exactly alike, which, which means something. Your uniqueness and my uniqueness and every believer's uniqueness, beloved, means that God also has a unique place for us to use those gifts, a unique way that he's calling us to serve him with those gifts. And so if we don't put those gifts to use, it's not just that someone else can fill that role and on goes the kingdom. It's this. It's those gifts are lost and the church is worse off on account of it. And no one else can actually fulfill that unique role because you were uniquely gifted for it. So, beloved, I hope we get by the end of this passage just the, the, the strong call to put our gifts to use, to understand what they are, but, but more importantly, to, to put them to use. Because we are uniquely gifted for a purpose. God has, God has a unique place for us to serve that we fit into like, like a jigsaw puzzle piece. And so if we don't understand uh, how important our 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 use of our gift is, we might not even use it. And then the kingdom is hindered by our work rather than helped. Something else I want us to notice regarding who receives these gifts. Uh, the, the language in, in verse 7 is interesting because he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. It doesn't say, but gifts were given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's grace. So it might sound like he's giving us grace rather than gifts. But if you flip back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, you'll see Paul saying, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now you ask, what grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So the grace that was given to Paul uh, that he's talking about is the gift of being an apostle. That's the grace he's talking about. So the grace that Paul's talking about here in verse 7 is the gift of Christ to us. Not, not grace in the sense of salvation, but grace in the sense of unique gifts bestowed to each one of us. And I want us to consider one more thing, and we'll look at this more next week regarding uh, the reason for our gifts, how we're called to use them. But 1 Peter 10, 4.10 makes it very clear that as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another, that the gifts which God has given us the unique gift package is not for our self-centered use, but is for the well-being of others. That God doesn't give gifts so that we can advance our own name, make our own lives more comfortable, but God gives each of us gifts to use for the sake of others. So the gifts that he's given to us, he intends us to use for the well-being of other people, whether believers, as is the main application here, or even in the world among unbelievers as a witness, as a gospel testimony, or as just a means for doing good to them. Oh, beloved, none of our gifts are meant to be centered around us. They're meant to enable us and strengthen us to be useful to those around us. What are the gifts? Well, here are, uh, I want to divide the gifts up into individual gifts and communal or corporate gifts, first of all. Before we do that, though, I want to I pause for a moment and, and mention this. I think it's important. The gifts here spoken of are not natural talents. The gifts spoken of here 
are gifts given directly from the Lord Jesus Christ to his people individually. So Jesus Christ has given each of you in this room as born-again Christians and me and every believer all over the world who's alive today individual gifts, certain gifts that come directly from him having ascended on high. The gifts are not an accident and they're not natural talents. And so what, the reason I want to say this is this. Someone can be a great speaker and explainer, but that doesn't mean they have the gift of teaching. Someone can be very, very eloquent. It doesn't mean that Christ has given them the gift of teaching the Bible. Someone can be wealthy and give a lot of money to charitable causes and yet not have the gift of generosity. It's possible that someone can fill the ears of other people up with kind words and yet not have the gift of encouragement. Some of the world's greatest speakers and teachers are non-Christians, right? Some of those most eloquent speakers that the world has ever known are not Christians. And one of the marks of, 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 of a gift that Christ has given us is that it's used in service to building up the church, not building up ourselves. So all the gifts that Christ gives are for His glory, for the glory of the triune God, and the building up of the church. That's one way to tell whether or not we're using natural talents. Natural talents can be used for our own self-centered means. But gifts that Christ gives to each of us are gifts to be used for the building up of other people. Now, what are some of these individual gifts? Paul doesn't explain in Ephesians 4, but I just want to briefly mention some of them, walk through them, and then we'll look at the the corporate gifts found in verse 11. So if you like uh, numbers to memorize, uh, to sort of hang your hat on, you can think of... Uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, and then Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, two fours and two twelves. And those chapters are the gifts that Christ gives. And so here's, here's sort of a gift category in Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 4. I'll read through them, and this gives us kind of a lay of the land on what the gifts are. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul is really unfolding, as it were, categories of giftedness, you might say, uh, Categories of doing acts of mercy, just general service. Categories of leading. Some people are great at forging new ministries, saying, hey, we're going to reach out to the community this way, or, or here's how we can do this in the church. And so they lead something, and others follow them gladly and joyfully. Uh, the category of generosity. People, some people are just generous to a hilt. They'll give themselves broke. They'll give themselves bankrupt even uh, in order to serve the Lord. A gift. Uh, to the church. There's gifts of teaching. There's gifts of speaking. Uh, Beloved, these are just general categories of how Christ gifts us individually. And you're going to see yourself in these categories. You can read 1 Corinthians 12 as well, or 1 Peter 4 verses 10 through 11, where the gifts are really speaking gifts and then serving gifts is how Peter divides them, speaking or teaching and then gifts of service. But in any case, beloved, I want us to understand that Christ has gifted you in a very particular way. You and I are called to use our gifts in the particular way that he's gifted us, and we're called to use them for 
uh, the advancement of God's kingdom for the building up of the church. And so I ask you, how has the Lord uniquely gifted you? I, I say that the individual gift is in the focus here in verse 7 because he writes, according to the measure of Christ's gift, grace was given to each one of us. So he's starting out on an individual basis. He wants all of us to know that he's not going to expand on the individual gifts, that all of us are individually and uniquely gifted. So Christian, you are. And there's a call to you and a call to me to use our individual gifts, to put them to use, to serve Christ with them because he's freely given them to us. More on that in a little bit. But secondly, there are uh, communal gifts. You might say community-wide, corporate-wide uh, gifts. And, and these are found uh, in verse 11. Now, there's a couple categories, you might say, that these gifts fall into. There's the permanent, there's the, the passing category or the foundational category, the apostles and the prophets. And then there's the, the permanent category, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So we're going to look at uh, first the apostles and the prophets. I say that they are foundational and thus passing because in Ephesians 2.20, we're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So Paul says, look, once the foundation's laid, you don't need to lay it again. The apostles and the prophets were foundational. Those gifts are no longer functioning, even though all of us benefit from them. So what is an apostle? An apostle is simply an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you remember in, in Acts chapter 1, after Judas had, uh, 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 his life had ended, they're looking for another apostle, and what was, the, what was the criteria they used? It had to be someone who had seen Jesus, who had been with them the whole time, and particularly seen the risen Lord. And then Paul talks about as well himself as one untimely born. He wasn't alive during the earthly ministry of Jesus. In this, uh, he was alive, but he wasn't following the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. But he had seen the Lord on the road to Damascus. The risen Christ showed up, and Paul saw him. So that qualified Paul to be an apostle. And Matthias was chosen by the Lord. They cast lots, and the lot is in the hand of the Lord. So even Matthias was chosen by the Lord and Paul was chosen by the Lord. You had to have seen the risen Lord and you had to have been appointed directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. That was what an apostle was. Someone who could then be commissioned, one sent out by the Lord Jesus to do his work and to do his bidding. The word apostle actually means sent out one. One sent with a commission. One who is called in, as it were, given instructions, turned around and sent out to go do someone's bidding. Prophets did not have to have seen Christ after his resurrection. Prophets could be male or female. In Acts 21.9, Paul writes, we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven deacons and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Prophets were given for the building up of the entire church. 1 Corinthians 14.3. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in tongues builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And prophets were needed, beloved, because in the absence of the New Testament, we have, you know, Matthew through Revelation. They had Genesis through Malachi. In the absence of the New Testament, when everything's changed and the curtain's been torn and we've got this new covenant coming in, and Paul's going around and establishing all these new congregations. People are wondering, well, how do we live? What is life like in this new covenant? And so God raised up not just apostles, but prophets to speak authoritatively a word for God to his people to lead and guide them 
until the New Testament canon was formed, until we have the New Testament. Then we don't need prophets with direct revelation from God because we have direct revelation from God in the New Testament. So once the New Testament had been clearly established, the need for the prophets faded away. So the apostles were gifts to the church, community-wide, and so were the prophets. And now their work is done, as it were. The foundation has been laid. And here are ongoing labors that continue in the church. The first one is evangelist. Paul mentions an evangelist. Uh, Philip was probably the first evangelist, or he was the first evangelist. In Acts 8, 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Very simple work. What does an evangelist do? Proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. So Philip did that in Acts 8, verse 5. And then in Acts 8, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And then he's maybe most famous for explaining to the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who, who this uh, mysterious figure is in Isaiah chapter 53. And we're told in Acts 8, verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Simply put, beloved, an evangelist is one who tells others the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering, his resurrection. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So doing the work of evangelism isn't just for an evangelist, it's actually for pastors and teachers as well. So Paul is telling Pastor Timothy, who is serving in the church in Ephesus, look, you have to do the work of an evangelist too. It's not just enough to preach and shepherd, but evangelize folks as well. And then there are shepherds and pastor, shepherds or pastors, uh, same uh, word group, and teachers. And if you'll notice in your ESV, the language that's used uh, to describe uh, sh- shepherds and teachers the definite article is not in front of teachers. So Paul is, or the Holy Spirit is, as it were, combining shepherds and teachers. He's, he's not saying there were, there were the evangelists and there were the shepherds, and then there's also this other group of teachers. Now, some have taken it that way, but the language suggests that he's talking about two roles of one calling, as it were, that there's people who are shepherds slash teachers or pastors slash teachers, and that that's a calling. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, if you're going to be an effective shepherd, you need to be able to teach. If people can't understand what you're saying as you come alongside them and as you, as you shepherd them and pastor them, then you're not going to be a very effective shepherd. And if you're going to be a teacher, you need to be someone who's approachable, someone accessible. You actually have to know the people that you're uh, teaching. If you don't know the life situation of people and what they're going through, it's hard to be an effective uh, teacher. I was uh, keenly made aware of this when I was uh, exhorting in Canada in seminary, and I made a reference to Yonkers and Sears, which (laughs) someone later came up and said, we don't have Yonkers or Sears around here. (laughs) But but they had been to America, and they understood the point, even though maybe the other thousand people had not. But it it illustrates this, that those who are commissioned by the Lord as uh, shepherds and teachers need to be able to teach in a way that is understood by the people, not over their heads, not not in language that so cloaks the clearness of the Word of God as to make it sound like the Word of God is confusing. And they also need to know the people that they're shepherding. So that a shepherd in New York City, a shepherd in Los Angeles, a shepherd in uh, Madagascar, 
and a shepherd in Pella, Iowa are going to sound very different, even though they're preaching the Word of God. They're going to sound very different. They're going to have different applications because people in Beijing, China, are not living like we in Pella. It's just a fact. They're not the same cultures. We don't have the same expectations. We don't wrestle with the same sins, societal sins, even the same personal sins. So those are the the permanent gifts of Christ to His church. We have the apostles, the prophets, the, the temporary foundational gifts, and then we have the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers as those gifts that the Lord keeps on giving to His church. And here's the final question I want to ask as we uh, conclude and look uh, at the rest of the passage. How do we get these gifts? Or or another way of putting it, where where do they come from? How do we get these individual gifts? And how do we get these these, uh, corporate-wide, church-wide gifts? And we find out where we get them from in verses 8 through 10. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is where the passage becomes very interesting, you might say. It's a quote from Psalm 68, verse uh, 18, and it's a reference to the Lord's victory, but it's also a very vivid uh, image to Gentiles. So the Jews would have said, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Psalm 68, I'm, I'm right there following you. I get this. Let a host of captives. But a, a Gentile who's in this church in Ephesus too would have said, I get the imagery as well. Because this is common imagery taken from uh, the life of a Roman general who was victorious. So if you're a Roman general and you go out and you fight a battle and you win, there's a certain set of steps that happen after that which looks like a parade, a military parade that's being proclaimed of Christ here. For Gentiles, the image you really hear is of one of Roman generals. So if you're a Roman general who is victorious, you had to go to the Senate to have approval, to gain approval, to have this victory parade where you lead the captives, you lead the host of captives and give gifts to men. So if the Senate approved, depending on their their Criteria might be how many people did you kill, how great of a victory was it. Um, If the Senate approves, then they could enter the city with this celebration. It was kind of like a tulip time, you might might think. Uh, A big parade route going through tons of people that were standing on the side, various citizens of Rome. In this parade, first were the captives who were bound with chains. And oftentimes you would bind the strongest captives. So if if you're going to proclaim your might, right... You're not going to be binding little two-year-old children saying, hey, look who we defeated. That's not impressive. Who are you going to be binding? Big, strong people. And you're going to be binding also the royalty. If there was any royalty that you captured, maybe the king of that region, you'd dress him up to look like the king that he was and put him in chains, and he would go first. Thereby, you're proclaiming, we got, we got victory over these people, these strong, incredible royal people. We gained the victory over them. After these people, there were musicians, torchbearers. You might think our, 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 our flag parade with the, with the marching bands going through there, the, 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 the flag marshal. And then there was the war booty, the gold, the silver, all the stuff that you got from the foreign country, which makes sense. If, if somebody comes into America and ransacks America, what do they get? All of our money, all of our gold, all of our silver, all of our oil, okay? So you're a victorious Roman general. What's in the parade? All the king's treasury, 
The king you just defeated, everything in his treasury is now in this parade. It's yours now. You own it. And then there came the general in a, in a massive chariot. He was praised for his amazing work, but he was never supposed to confuse himself as a god because the people along the parade route were under the understanding that they're worshiping the gods even as this parade is going on. They're praising the gods for the work, not the general as a god, but the gods, or even you could argue Caesar, but not the general. And there was, as one commentator write, the entire parade was supposed to be a worship service for the gods. So there was someone, usually a slave, who would ride along with the commander and tell him, look behind you. Remember, you're a man. And behind the general were his children, his officers, and his troops. So looking behind was another way of saying... (laughs) You're, you're a family man as well. You're not all that big and mighty. Your officers were the ones who fought, and so were your troops. So keep this all into perspective. <laughs> Don't get too big of a head. We're praising the gods. We're not praising you. And then finally, at the back of the prey would be if there were any civilians. Civilians who were in the foreign country, in jail, in prison, captive, who were now freed when the Romans came and got victory over that country. So the Romans come in, they get victory over country A, and all the captives and prisoners in country A are now free citizens. They're part of the Roman government. So they're in this parade route, obviously very happy, because now they're free, and they're free to go under new masters. And this is where you and I come in, but this parade has a little bit of a different twist. The Gentiles would have understood this, and the Jews would have got a little bit of this as well. Instead of the Senate having to approve of Jesus' victory parade, It was the Father approving of it by the resurrection. Lord, have all the debts been called in? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Will there be approval for this? Jesus Christ worked on the cross. He fought this fight. Does the Father approve of it? Is this worth a victory parade, a victory march? And the resurrection was the Father's way of saying, absolutely, this is worth a victory march. Yes, there is going to be a parade in this. And the captives that were paraded around at the front of this parade route were not mere mortal men, but Satan and the authorities, as we're told in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. You can think of the language of a parade. They're, They're openly made fun of now, so that anyone who may have thought Satan was something now realizes he's nobody because he's chained. He's been defeated. He's been disarmed publicly before for all to see. And instead of someone whispering in the ear, remember you are mortal, his people are worshiping and praising Jesus because he is God. He is the one worthy of all praise. And so everyone is praising his great name at the resurrection and after it. And then the two aspects of this that come into place for us are really powerful. They're this. Number one, we're the free civilians at the end of the parade. We're the ones who have now been freed. We're the ones who are stuck in a kingdom of darkness, trapped, unable to get out. And when Jesus walks into this kingdom of darkness and defeats the king of darkness, now we're in this parade route as those who are singing for joy because we have a new master now and a new king, and we're freed from our old bondage. And catch this, the riches of Christ are ours. Now, in Roman parades, it was very common for all the bounty to be used to build, do building projects in Rome. Make Caesar look great. Make Rome look incredible. But in this passage, we're told that Christ gives us the gifts 
So all this gold and silver are sitting there at his disposal. Instead of saying to the Senate here, you take all this and go build some stuff. He's looking at the people behind him in the parade route and on the sides of the parade route saying, it's yours. (laughs) All this gold, all this silver, everything I've earned is now yours to use and to enjoy. He takes all this booty and he hands it out. How was Jesus victorious? This is his parade march. When did the victory happen? Well, the victory took place on the field of battle. And in verses 9 to 10, we're given sort of a glimpse of where this battlefield was, if you want to notice it. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? So if we're going to talk about an ascended Christ who's giving out gifts, it means that he ascended from somewhere, right? So if he's ascended, it means he must have first come down to somewhere, which is where? The earth, the lower regions, comma, the earth. He descended, which is right in line with his incarnation. And in his descension, he came all the way down to this earth to fight a battle for us. And the battle is talked about in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. So where was victory won? It was won at the cross. And it was an epic battle. It was a battle of all proportions. It was a battle so great that God to this very day is still saying, preach it. He's still saying, when you do the Lord's Supper, do it in light of it. It's that massive of a battle. Here's how the battle goes. We all know it. Satan is after Jesus. Jesus is born, and Satan's going to take him out. So all the Bethlehem baby boys are wiped out. Jesus escapes. Jesus wins at this point. Satan comes after him at his temptations. If he can make Jesus fall, again, good and evil, beloved. Epic battle. God against Satan. Who's going to pull this off? This is either victory or defeat for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he withstands the temptations after having gone 40 days and 40 nights without eating. So Satan leaves him. But then it steps up one more, one higher, when Satan enters Judas to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where things start going south very fast for the Lord. Because Judas betrays him and it works. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and a mob comes and takes him over. And now it looks like Jesus is out of control. The disciples don't know what to do. They're starting to flee. Not just Peter, but every one of them is starting to walk away. Now he's before the Sanhedrin, before the high priest. Then he's before Herod. He's before Pilate. He's before Herod. He's going every place and no one will exonerate him. And the battle keeps waging on. Satan is winning, winning, winning. And finally, Satan gets him pinned to a tree with all of his people standing there quietly. Nobody doing anything. Jesus is bleeding and dying. He's about ready to breathe his last. There's been three hours of darkness. This looks like the absolute end of everything. Jesus versus Satan, who will win? And then it looks like Satan is finally won when we're told Jesus breathed his last. It's over. Father, your hands and I commit my, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's over. Satan wins, beloved. That's the end of the story in the mind of Satan. I've done it. I won. So now Satan's going to have the victory parade. And on the third day, Jesus rises again. The Lord rose him up. And all of a sudden, we have a total turn of events. Death couldn't keep him. Death can't keep someone who's never sinned. The wages of sin is death. If you haven't sinned, then your wages is life. So Jesus gets life. He's raised from the dead, no longer imputed with our sin, but having paid for our sin, 
perfectly righteous, always has been, always will be. He's raised from the grave, and he's victorious. And he ascends, as it were, with the cross crushed beneath his feet, Satan crushed beneath his feet, saying, I won. It's over. And now, as an ascended king, I'm leading Satan captive. He's bound. He's handcuffed, as it were, so much so that the gospel can go out to the nations now. It's not just bound to Israel. It's going out to the nations. It's going out to Europe. It's going to hit the Americas. It's going all the way east and all the way west and will continue to do so as long as he reigns in heaven before he comes again. And he's going to give gifts, beloved. He's going to give gifts to you and me. He's happy to give gifts, as it were, the war booty. Satan thought he had Jesus defeated, but Jesus had a better plan. God had a better plan. Go ahead, Satan. Do what you think is going to work. But I'm actually going to use you as a pawn in my redemptive plan. You're nothing more than a tool. You thought Judas was your tool? Well, actually, you're my tool. And you're going to accomplish my victory so that my gospel can go out and my kingdom can be advanced. So, Jesus died to redeem you from sin, beloved. And Jesus died to give you gifts to use in service to him. Catch that. Jesus died to redeem us from our sin. And Jesus descended and died and won a victory so that he could ascend and give us gifts to use. So Jesus died to give you and me gifts. If your best friend had worked 50 years, made, let's say, half a million dollars, saved it up, went out and bought some mansion for $500,000 or Rolls Royce and gave it to you, what would you do with that gift? You probably wouldn't accept it, but let's say you accepted it, right? You accepted the gift. How much would that mean to you knowing what it cost him? You'd probably take really good care of that house, right? (laughs) You'd probably vacuum that Rolls Royce out every day in honor of that person saying, wow, look at what they did. Jesus died, beloved, bled, suffered, died to give you gifts and me gifts, and every Christian gifts. What are you doing with them? What am I doing with them? Do you know your gifts? Do you want to know them? Will we use them? Not out of guilt, but to honor our victor, to honor our new master, the one who's freed us. Are we using our gifts to build his kingdom? He wants us to. He bled and died so we could. Now, beloved, yours is the privilege of taking all this free gold, this free silver that was Christ, and he gives it to us, and saying, Lord, I'm going to go to work. Here I am. Tomorrow's Monday. This afternoon is this afternoon and Sunday. What am I going to do to use my gifts? Will you use them? May God give us strength to put them to use. Let's pray together.